ทสาบุกวาทูอรหัตูสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนัมโมทัสสะบุกวาทูอรหัตูสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนัมโมทัสสะบุกวาทูอรหัตูสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะทังธรรมังสังขังนามสัง New Year's Eve is the Time of year when <clears throat> we quite naturally might be inclined to uh, think back, and reflect back over the year that's passed, and as we do so, uh, could easily come up with all sorts of reasons for feeling despairing about life. Uh, a lot of things that. Uh, Last year has not been easy for everybody, but I suspect also uh, we could, and likewise, if we chose to, we could also feel a huge amount of gratitude. Though it occurs to me that uh, it's a worthy subject for contemplation, for reflection, as to how we choose, how do we decide to pay attention? What do we pay attention to? What do we How do we allow our life to be shaped? Because, uh, as I was saying at the introduction to the meditation this evening, our experience of life is shaped very much by what and how we pay attention, uh, and what we pay attention to. And this came to me quite vividly a few days ago when I don't know why it happened, but I. I found myself reflecting back on twenty uh, years ago when I was sent here to take over this monastery, and the last abbot uh, he was moving on to do other things, and uh, I was asked to come here, um, asked without any option, sort of asked, if you know what I mean, kind of like I was told that I was going to Harnham, and. Uh, it had just occurred to me the other day when I was thinking about it. I thought, "Gosh, you know what? They were just getting rid of me, you know, from the last monastery I was at, because it was quite clear that I knew at the time that Hana was not viewed as the favoured option. The trustees up here were troublemakers, you know. They they weren't a bunch of of, of yes men, you know. They had their own ideas about things and and they expressed them and and you know some sometimes." The monks didn't necessarily want to hear <laughs> about that, and uh, and then there was there was also always seemed to be issues going on around Hana Monastery, and so it wasn't the kind of the <clears throat> the, the ideal place to go to, and um, and I remember also that the way I was sent here and the whole experience of it was, gosh, you know what? They were just getting rid of me. They just threw me out. It's quite possible that I'm just being paranoid. Um, and they didn't throw me out at all. I may just be imagining it. On the other hand, it, it's quite possible that they were, because I was a troublemaker. I, I think back to 20 years ago, I wasn't as nice and as amenable and as such good company as I am now. I was uh, actually a real pain in the neck. And there were a lot of things in the monastery I just wanted to change. I wanted to change everything, quite frankly. Basically, I, all I could see about the monastery I was in was what was wrong with it. And as soon as I came to Harnham, I changed loads of things, and it was. Uh, the monastery I was at, the way they did breakfast—you wouldn't believe the way they did breakfast in that monastery. Every day, seven days a week, everybody in the monastery—monks, nuns, lay visitors, 
we'd all sit around in this one stuffy room and with all our full robes on and we'd eat this, what was offered, and, and then the abbot would sit up there in his high seat and pontificate for, for I don't know how long about things that we weren't interested in. Now, I'm not exaggerating. This is a very deep impression that I have of my experience. And I just thought, what do we do this for? You know, and, um, and the Anagarikas, they weren't taught how to make breakfast. Like these young guys, they come to the monastery. A lot of them don't know how to cook at all. They're given no guidance. And here they are preparing the first meal of the day for the monastery. Now, that's a lot of power. That's a lot of influence. And I remember often they would do, they just, they just get yesterday's leftover rice, whether it was burnt or not, didn't matter. They just heat it up and then whatever they fancied, they'd just throw in there, you know. They'd, they'd throw in their leftover baked beans and Mars bars and a jar of peanut butter. And, and I'm not kidding, this actually happened. And they were given no instruction at all. And I, I was just, you know, you call this leadership? You call this a monastery? I mean, and I would comment on these things. So I was a pain on Nick. I was always wanting to change everything. I, I wanted, you know, more, uh, you know, ability for the junior monks, and and um, so it is a good chance that they threw me out. So, but what I'm getting around to saying is that when this perception rose in my mind, instead of feeling dragged down by it and feeling sorry for myself and critical, I just all my mind just filled with with gratitude. You know, for the period after that perception arose. For the first time ever, it never occurred to me that they threw me out. But there, there it was. It was quite realistic. But it was met with all this gratitude. And my mind just wanted to dwell on and was glad to dwell on the goodness of the last 20 years. I just have so much, so much gratitude for having been here and still being here. Here we are, the end of 2011, beginning of 2012. And it hasn't all been cosy. Some of you have been around here for a while, and you know that we've, um, you know, we've been given a run for our money here. There's, uh, you know, there's certain other people wanted us to move on as well, but uh, <clears throat> we've had to work hard to meet the, some of the difficulties that have come our way. But still, even now, when I think back, I just have tremendous gratitude for the, the people. The, the, there's something about I don't know. Hopefully it's not prejudice, but there is something about the northerners. There's an openness and a friendliness and a down-to-earthness and, and the, um, the physical environment, the wonderful clean air we have and the f excellent water that we have and the, uh, uh, the spaciousness of it, the light, the whole experience of, of being in Northumberland. I, I just feel physically and socially and also in terms of my own inner life, which, of course, is more important than all the other stuff. Uh, wonderful opportunities for practicing, and so I have this uh, tremendous gratitude and gladness. But the reason I'm raising this right now is uh, what I'm pointing to in raising this right now is that we have a choice that things happen in life that we don't like, that we wish didn't happen. But if we are skillful, if we're careful, if we know how to reflect wisely, you know, which the Buddha said over and over again, you know, learning how to reflect wisely on our life, then instead of falling down into despair, you know, we can be lifted up into gratitude. And, and this is something I think really worth remembering because there's endless opportunities for despairing.
But the radiance of gratitude dispels despair. The radiance of gratitude dispels despair. And we've always got the choice to engage it. No matter what's happened in our life, there's always something that if if we're careful, if we focus our mind the right way, we say, well, it could have been a lot worse. We can be glad for that. Sometimes... Sometimes the young monks come to me, sometimes lay practitioners come to me and they just say, oh, I don't seem to be making any progress in my practice this year and I don't seem to be getting anywhere. And, well, that may be that you know you can't see that you're getting anywhere. But it's also useful to think you know, quite realistically about where we could have been if we weren't practicing. Yeah. I know in my own life I... I can look back and I can focus on the limitations of my life and and how I could have done things better, but it doesn't take a lot of effort to also see that I could have done things a lot worse. And that's a cause for gladness, a cause for gratitude. So cultivating gratitude, really raising it up, is something the Buddha praised. If we choose to do this, then as I was saying, the radiance of gratitude is a state of heart, a state of mind, can dispel despair. And who knows what we've got ahead of us, what causes for despair there could be. You know, we're all getting older and the, the joints are not as much fun as they used to be. You know, speaking personally, you, know, you don't, I don't know about you guys, but, you know, I don't go jogging anymore, that's for sure. And um, socially, economically, environmentally, and on every level, we uh, probably all got the ability to think about the future and despair. But I think it's wise to recognise we've got a choice about that. That's a choice we make. We can also choose to actually focus on the potential, the goodness, and and the goodness that we've experienced and the potential for more goodness. I, again speaking personally, I have a a little uh, personal ritual that I do at the end of the day before I go to bed at night and I, I dedicate the punya of my life, I go through my feeling of, of appreciation and indebtedness to my teachers and to this opportunity for practicing and, and to all the people who live here in the monastery, all the people who live on the hill, and go through until it includes all beings, all realms of existence throughout all time. So it's pretty expansive. And, and uh, really dedicating whatever goodness there might have come from practice to all beings. But then... As I finish it off, the last thing I formally reflect on is may I never forget the heart of gratitude for all the kindness I've received. And you really make a point of that. Now, sometime at the end of the day, I'm you know, pretty tired and, and worn out and, and uh, I don't necessarily always reflect on that theme with a lot of consciousness and enthusiasm, but I still say it. But there are other times when... I do have energy and do have clarity of mind and I, I don't find it difficult to say that with real sincerity, with real enthusiasm. May I never forget the gratitude. Now, to really consciously wish that, which is something that, again, sometimes we forget the power of this, the power of conscious wishing. You know, uh, it seems to have become the case that for most Western Buddhists, the... the uh, the ideal of practice is just to kind of close everything down, make the mind peaceful. We've all been 
tortured so severely and relentlessly by our excess of thinking and, and worrying and getting anxious about everything that if we learn to focus attention on the breath or some other meditation object which doesn't take too much effort, you just do this and then boom, oh, what a break. You're just wonderful, what a relief. You, you get a break from your irritating, compulsive thinking, complaining, judging, criticizing mind and it's such a relief. But um, it seems that uh, at that point, for many of us, we then project onto this relatively peaceful mind uh, the, the ultimate, when this is not the ultimate. This is just, that's just like going on a holiday. That's all it is. That kind of samadhi, that kind of peacefulness. It's just like going on a holiday. We all need a holiday. We all need to be able to put our feet up and get a change of environment and see things afresh and recharge the batteries and, and look at life anew. That's, that's, that's just skillful. That's just a, a useful, a skillful thing to do. But that's not life. We don't live life like that. Yeah. So that kind of relative peacefulness that we can establish for meditation, that's not the goal of practice. And uh, sometimes it seems that people think it is and they, they have some of that initial experience in meditation and so they keep going back, keep going back, trying to uh, have this experience again of, of peacefulness. When really what might be uh, more skillful is to engage this wonderful mind that we have, something I've been speaking about quite a bit recently, uh, trying to undo people's demonizing of the thinking mind. So many people think that their thinking is a problem, well, the thinking is only a problem because I think it's a problem. Thinking is perfectly natural and potentially amazing, wonderful tool. And if we really appreciate and value our wonderful capacity for thinking, for discerning, for investigating, then we can use it in a way to, to skillfully undo <coughs> some of these unhelpful tendencies that we have, you know, like falling into despair. Again, it, it happens many times. People come to me and they say, oh, I look at the world and I feel so despairing. I said, well, you, know, you could look at the world in a different way and feel grateful. I mean, you know, there are, from what I hear, apparently there are fewer wars on the planet now than there have ever been throughout all recorded history. You look at some of the 24-hour the news and you might think that that's not accurate, but... I trust that is the case. You know, we, we have really learned to be much nicer to each other uh, in, in recent years. And, and uh, we're more healthy than we've ever been. We've got more food than we've ever had. And there's, there's a lot that is of uh, uh, great benefit and a source of, of well-being and safety for many people. So it really just, uh, is just determined by how we choose to apply attention, how we <coughs> choose to reflect and to recognize that we do have that choice. Yes, we can allow the mind to sink into despair, and sometimes if you do too much samadhi meditation, all you do is just make your mind very sensitive. But it doesn't necessarily make your mind wise. You can get very sensitive. Again, I hear people talking about this, and they say, oh, you know, just one good meditation, they call it a good meditation. In other words, they, they tranquilize themselves and blot everything out and go into a sort of a state of not really knowing very much or feeling very much. And they call this a good meditation. So one good meditation, and then afterwards, oh, life is so intolerable. 
it's so painful the way people are so cruel to each other and 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 you go into town and it just smells so bad i mean i don't know about you but that's my experience i go to london every month or one day a month and it just smells bad you know the, the whole experience and and, uh, and and the speed at which people are operating and and um, and they say, well, you know, I don't know what to do. You know, every time I have a good meditation, it becomes intolerable. Perhaps we need to exercise this wonderful capacity we have for thinking in a careful, considered way, and to look at that way we approach life. You become more sensitive, and life becomes more painful. But do we have to allow ourselves to be pulled down into despair? If we're exercising wise reflection skillfully, we just won't do that. We'll catch it sooner. Now, in the beginning, it's difficult. You know, but that doesn't mean to say it's not true. When I was living with my first teacher, Ajahn Tate, and I was talking about an experience that I had had in practice, which was you know, quite a big thing for me, but probably in the bigger picture of things wasn't such a big deal, but I was explaining it to Ajahn Tate, and and he was saying, oh, you're very good. He says, all you've got to do now is remember sooner. You've got to remember sooner. Then. And this is something that, that, that wise reflection helps us do. Setting our meditation and making your mind peaceful and just pushing away all the so-called hindrances and obstructions and the nuisance, the untidiness of life and banging through to our agreeable state of tranquility could also actually just be potentizing the mind of preference. And then when you come out of that relative state of peace, it's not the peace of wisdom, it's a peace of willfully applying attention and, and gratifying your desire for, a, for not being disturbed. And once you come out of that relative level of peace, well, unless there's some wise discernment and wise reflection going on, as if we can be making our life much more difficult. So I suspect sometimes I get myself into, still get into a bit of hot water and trouble by telling people to stop meditating. You know, these days I, I, I don't hesitate to tell some people, just stop doing it. You know, you're not helping yourself by all this meditation. If what you think meditation is, is just blotting your mind out. You know, concentration meditation can be a little different from taking a tranquilizer based on the preference of not being disturbed by life. But we've all been around for long enough to know that's not what the Buddha was teaching. When the Buddha was talking to his son Rahula, and uh, and he said, uh, "You know, what is a mirror for?" And Rahula said, "A mirror is for seeing your face in." And the Buddha said, "So I say, wise reflection is for seeing the mind." He didn't say taking a tranquilizer and making yourself peaceful. He said, "Wise reflection is for seeing the mind." And so we have this. Wonderful ability to direct our thinking, to use it in a way that helps us ask the right questions at the right time, that starts to undo the tangle, the knot of our painful, isolated loneliness. You know, I know a, a lot of people will use, again, tranquility meditation to avoid the pain of loneliness. I mean, there's no question about it, loneliness is painful. And just escaping into some momentary tranquility can give you a break from something that's painful, but does it really address it? Does it really undo the tangle? Does it really undo the knot of contraction that 
I experience myself to be. Uh, not necessarily. For that, we need to get a little bit more subtle. Well, actually, a lot more subtle. And to to use our mind to investigate, to see, until we get to the point where we see we have this power. We have this power to choose. You know, don't believe what the world tells us, you know, that you're a victim. You're not a victim. It suits certain politicians to have people feeling helpless. And then they can rule us and control us. It suits certain economists to have people feeling helpless, to keep people confused. But if you're exercising mindfulness, you're exercising wise discernment, you realize you've always got a choice. We've always got a choice to choose which way we're going to apply attention. Even if we can't exercise it, even if we feel pulled by our habits, there's still that potential to quietly reflect and just say, this is a habit. I'm letting myself be pulled into. A good friend recently visited and was uh, sharing with me some of his experience of a decade or so ago where he uh, escaped from Serbia. He, uh, he had a good business in Serbia, had a nice desktop publishing business just getting going, but then the bombing came to Belgrade and his business, well, not just Belgrade, other cities, uh, Novi Sad as well, and, and basically his business was wiped out and... So he escaped out of Serbia with his wife and young daughter and one suitcase each uh, to uh, somewhere else in Europe where he couldn't speak the language, very little money and no work. And that was difficult. Yeah, that was really difficult. That wasn't just not getting samadhi when you want it. That was, I mean, this was, this was really tough. And he'd never talked to me about this before. And, but... It was interesting, the way he was talking about it was with this beautiful smile on his face. He was just, he was just talking about the gladness of, of his, the lovely relationship he has with his wife and, his, and, his, uh, and his, the, the fact that he came across Buddhist teachings early on in his life. You know, he, has this, he has a relationship and a wonderful daughter and a family life that he can trust in and feel grateful for. And also he has this love and access to Dhamma. He's very committed to his Dhamma practice. And, and even though still now he's not living in exactly a wonderful circumstance, he's just such a wonderfully happy person. He's a really happy guy. And he could talk about all this misfortune of his life. He wasn't blaming NATO. I mean, like I've heard other people when I've been in Serbia, you know, they, they don't, they're not as equanimous as he is about what NATO did to their country and or whoever else. But he realizes, you've got a choice. He said he realized back then. He was already meditating and, and using his Dhamma practice to exercise wise reflection. He, he realized back then, he said, I've got a choice. He said, I could, I could really be hard done by, like a lot of people were feeling very hard done by and becoming a victim, or I can choose to reflect in a way that lifts the mind up, lifts the heart up. So I think this is particularly important. Um, it's always important, but I think we're all aware that uh, right now there's, there's plenty going on on the planet that means that there's a lot of feeling threatened, a lot of people are feeling you know, very undermined and not very confident, whereas in the past they were feeling very confident. Uh, the evidence is that uh, the confidence was ill-founded. Uh, perhaps some of us have that experience as well, that when life circumstances change and we get pulled down to despair, you say, well, last year I was feeling very confident, or even last week I was feeling very confident, but now conditions have changed and I've lost my confidence. Well, 
if we're wise, we reflect, well, is that, was that confidence secure? Was that, in, in Buddhist speak, was that a wise refuge? Was that a secure refuge? You know, we all know that the, the Buddha, you know, the Buddhist teachings talk about the triple gem, the three refuges, the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, as being unshakable, worthy objects of refuge. These are things that are worth looking towards to lift ourselves up because they're reliable. Well, not just with regards to the triple gem, the three refuges, but also in all the areas of our life. You know, to don't just because we've had an initial experience with a little bit of peacefulness for meditation, don't assume that's the only way that we can apply attention and practice. You know, if you read the scriptures more, you see over and over again the Buddha encouraged wise reflection. Think about this thing. Think about that thing. Think about impermanence. Think about death. Say, oh, I don't want to think about death. I mean, that's a complete taboo. Well, if we respect the teacher, we respect the Buddha, and he said, think about death. Well, you know, out of respect, we can just try to look at our relationship with the thought of death. And we don't have to go very far, in my experience. You know, once you have grown up, once you're past the, the, the 30s and you're getting on in life, the thought of death, I can remember the first moment in my life, I was 36 years old, and I can still remember where I was, where the first conscious moment came out and said, you're going to die one day. And it was such a relief. It was such a wonderful thought. And you, know, you could say, well, you're a bit sick, aren't you? You know, yeah. I know, you know, it's um, uh, not a, a very kosher PC thing to be getting off on thinking about death. But my own contemplation on that, what it showed me was that one of the reasons why it feels good to think about your mortality is that it means you can stop lying to yourself about your immortality. It takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of denial. It takes a lot of effort to feed habits of denial like the habit of denial that makes us think that we're immortal? Has there ever been a human being born that doesn't get sick and die? And we all know that, of course. So how can we all get shocked and disappointed and upset when it looks like somebody's going to die? You know, we get, I mean, it is the most obvious thing. And yet we've got this massive habit of denial. We believe in the story about immortality. No, and there are also spiritual stories that make us believe in immortality, just to avoid anything, to avoid the terrifying intuition that this is all going to come to an end. Whereas, if we heed what the Buddha said and engage in a wise reflection on, on death, we don't have to be afraid of it. Or even if fear does come up, we can not be afraid of the fear. We can be willing to investigate the fear. We can approach the fear instead of with running away from it and trying to get peaceful again, you know, by obliterating it and dropping it to some sort of tranquility. We can turn to it and we can we can talk to it. We can talk to fear. You know, we can you know, like fear comes up about something that you're going to have to do, you know, maybe you have to have a difficult conversation with somebody. And you think about it and this anticipation comes up. Even dread maybe comes up. Now if we know how to really consider, really use our thinking mind skillfully, we can ask questions to it and we can, we can basically 
address this apparent reality with something that undermines it. We don't have to believe in the way it appears. Like regularly, all of us must have had the experience many times where we thought something was worth worrying about only later to find out that it was completely groundless. You know, like anticipation. You're anticipating something dreadful, terrible happening. You know, maybe you think you've said something that's upset somebody and threatening one of your most important relationships and you're dreading it, you can't sleep at night, you're tossing and turning and just you write an email or you, you do whatever, send a text message or, I don't know, pin something on your Facebook account or whatever. Somehow you get the message out and only to hear back that, so what are you talking about? <laughs> Nothing happened. I didn't think you said that. It was completely groundless. Now, if we're exercising our wise reflection, we'll take a note of that and say, oh, I was really fooled there. I was really fooled by the way that appeared. You know, that anxiety, that anticipation really fooled me. Totally. And really, and really make something out of that. So the next time when it comes up, we'll be a little less inclined to feel fooled by it. The same with desire. Desires come up and you think, oh, oh absolutely, when I get that little bit of kit, I don't know, you know, or something, you know, I'll, I'll be no doubt about it. You know, it may be the thought you don't even think like that anymore because it's, it's such a habit. You're just so deeply convinced. When you get that, you will be happy. Really, you know, really about happy. And, and yet we all know how often we've been through this. You know, like if you, f- you want to finish something, I don't know if you have this thing, I, sometimes I just want to finish something. And when I just finish this project... Oh, it'll be so good. It'll be so, so good when I finish this project. It's maybe been going on for months or maybe even years, and you've just got all these to-do lists, you know, got to do this, got to do this. When I finish this project, it's going to be so wonderful. And I had this, when I, I finished the project, there's no time again, I'm just into another one. Uh, and there's the same feeling again. Now, wisely reflecting means we notice things. Oh, look at that. Isn't that interesting? It is. I find it absolutely riveting to realize how foolish I am and how I get fooled over and over and over again. But the good thing, like thinking about death, is that you can stop lying to yourself about it. You don't have to pretend to be clever. You realize that you're foolish. You're really, really foolish. We are really foolish. Like one of the great masters in Thailand of the last century, the Vinal Laja Mahabua, was talking about the nature of consciousness, the nature of the heart, when it's after freshly enlightened, uh, newly enlightened. And he was saying that the recognition of the degree and intensity of human stupidity is such that you've got no motivation to try and say anything to anybody because people have got to be just so completely thick to be behaving the way they do. Which also fits with what the Buddha said after his enlightenment. There was no motivation to, to try and talk because, you know, because just the glaring obvious stupidity of... You know, it's like sticking darts into yourself and saying, it hurts, it hurts. <laughs> so, well, well, stop doing it. You know, and uh, Ajahn Chah would say this to people. He says, the people come to me and they complain about the problems in life. And I just say, well, well, let go. You know, you're hanging on to the wrong thing. You know, it's like you're hurting yourself. I say, well, let go. And they say, oh, but I can't let go. I said, well, let go. You can let go. And, well, just to finish that story about Ajahn Mahabua, just so you don't feel too disheartened, he said that actually what happens after that, though, is the nature of the enlightened heart or awakened consciousness is such that you, you can't help yourself. There's nobody there who's resisting. So that even though there is this glaringly obvious predicament of intense human stupidity, 
uh, always clinging to things, think it's going to make them happy when it makes them unhappy. He says, what happens is the heart is so sensitive that whenever you see suffering, compassion determines action. This is the natural consequence of awakening is that compassion is the motivating force, not just wisdom but also compassion, and that whenever there's a, a view of suffering, there's the impulse to help. But uh, getting back to the, uh, the, the position that some of us find ourselves in when we reflect on our predicament, it doesn't have to take us into despair to realize that we are pretty foolish, really. You know, we, <clears throat> we spoil all sorts of things in our life. But if we're just honest about it, say, well, actually, in all truth, I don't want to do that. Yeah. In fact, when I look at it, I don't really believe in that anymore. You know, like objects of desire, you know, not just fear or anxiety or anticipation, but also objects of desire. You, know, you, you feel you want this bit of kit or you want to finish this project, but you've been fooled by it. And then afterwards, this perception comes up and says, I shouldn't be fooled by that next time. Now, running away and just making our mind peaceful is not necessarily going to teach us that lesson. Wisely reflecting is what helps us get that message. And until we get that message, we keep being pulled down over and over again. With despair, if we've got wise reflecting capacity alive within us, you can feel despair, but you can you say, actually, I don't believe what you're telling me. I don't believe the story you're telling me. That's what it is. It's like politicians or newspaper editors. You know, the, the newspaper editors will tell us stories, they'll put a spin on a story, you know, or, or advertising agents have put a spin in a story because they want to fool us for their own purposes. But quietly we say, actually, I don't believe you. You know, like some of the junk food around, it looks so beautiful. I mean, chocolate. Oh, oh I mean, chocolate is so attractive. And there's this Christmas stuff that people have been passing around. It's just so attractive. And yet I know if I eat chocolate, I get a headache. I've learned that one. You know, I've learned. It, it looks that way, but it's not that way. Yeah. Again, I was saying I go to London every month and, and I, I've, I train myself with objects of desire, that, you know, because it's, you know, the, it was shops, everything's advertising, and billboards and so on, and you know, sitting and waiting in St. Pancras Station and so on. And, and, uh, and so I train my mind, I think, yeah, that's like a, cappuccino that's been spiked I, you know, I, I call sense desires spiked cappuccinos because I love cappuccino but it makes me sick I actually again I get splitting headaches if I have a cappuccino but I really like it there's no question about it when I smell, see, whatever a cappuccino, I want it I absolutely want it but I've learnt that it's a con and so it's like a spiked cappuccino, not only is it bad for me the cappuccino but I imagine somebody spiked it with strychnine. You know? And so it's a spike. And what it helps do is basically teaching the mind, just saying, yeah, you want it? No question about it. I don't have to pretend I don't want it. You know, there's no question about it. I really love cappuccino. But am I going to have one? No, because there's something else going on in the background. There's this program that I've, I put in there that's saying, you can want it, but don't believe the way it appears. And so this way of using wise reflection to educate, to train our minds, to train our thinking, to support our progress on the path of liberation. And if we 
if we have confidence and skill in this, then you see it really, it's, it's wonderful how it develops. It's a wonderful, you can see it growing. It's, it's like a, a capacity for speaking a language. Um, probably most of us at some stage in life have learned a foreign language. And uh, in my experience, I'm sure it's the same for you, that in the beginning you're learning to the basic words. and Well, in my case it was Thai, and it's not just the words, but it's also the tone of the word, you know, you, you can say a word in a certain way and, and you think you've got it absolutely right, but the person listening to you just looks at you and you go, what? <laughs> Obviously that didn't work. So, like, for instance, in Thai, the word cow, you know, cow. Uh, and I, I would say, uh, I want to eat cow. You know, to gin cow. I want to eat cow. But then they look at me because I've just told them I want to eat somebody's knees, you know. It turns out there's five words for cow. Cow, 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 cow. Five different words. And, you know, until you've really got that down, you know, it's, 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 you've got to get the tone right. But when you start to get it right, isn't that exciting? And you start to see your capacity for communicating. You know, you, you can do this now. It's really neat. You can, I can listen to Ajahn Chah's talks and understand them directly. And you can talk to the novices and tell them to get lost and that is a wonderful feeling you've got this ability well you know it's just the same with wise reflection you don't have to feel pathetic just because you haven't got any samadhi there are other faculties that we can be cultivating uh, just you know to use this like for instance as I mentioned a minute ago that when you start to see through the stories of your mind that when you get that you'll be happy or that's really threatening that terrifying humiliating possibility that's going to ruin your life, you know, that's coming to you, it's, you can say, I don't believe you. I don't believe the story you're tell, telling me. And it's not coming from a, a technique or a theory. It's just coming because you've seen it and you're really interested and so you tell it over and over again. I don't believe the story you're telling me. And then what, what you notice after a while is <clears throat> it shortens. And you're saying, I don't believe you. Then you start noticing, you're just saying, don't believe. And then maybe it's just don't. And then what's really nice is where there's nothing, there's no words, but the attention has got the message. And so all you've got to do is look at it, and there's a quiet reading of it. There's a quiet recognition that is not the way it appears. You don't have to do it. You don't have to fight it. You don't have to get rid of it. It is what it is. Yeah. And in time, there's a trust that it'll fade away. Yeah. So, uh, talking about this, we're reflecting on gratitude um, and the the skillfulness of it. Also, reflecting on reflection itself. You know how to exercise this this capacity that we all, as human beings, have as ways of encouraging ourselves that, that whatever lies ahead of us, whether it's wonderful and, 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 and rewarding and nourishing and pleasing, uh, we can reflect on it and not get lost in it, or whether it's really difficult, as it may well be. Well, hopefully th- th- we won't get lost in that either. Was, uh, I was reading a, 
a Dhammapada verse, <clears throat> number 245, recently came across. And, well, of course, I've looked at them all in the past, but I, I recently came across this one, and it's quite a long verse. But, but in summary, what it says is, life is not easy for those who have a sense of conscience and who are reflective. I mean, it goes into all sorts of other virtues as well, but in summary, that's what it says. Life is not easy for those who have a sense of conscience and who are reflective. Part of us, I think, likes to imagine that if you're cultivating virtues, you're cultivating impeccability, morality, uprightness and, and honesty, and you're reflecting on life, that somehow that should be making life easier. But, well, that wasn't what the Buddha said. Actually, he said it's difficult. What's easy, what's easy on a surface level, on an ego level, is just to make no effort at all. You know, sit back with a tube of Fosters and watch the X Factor, <laughs> whatever people do. Uh, you know, just basically to just follow instincts you know, rather than to be reflective. You know, if we reflect on life and if there's a sense of integrity or a sense of of, of conscience, then what comes up really a lot of the time is actually sadness. Yeah. It's, a, it's a really sad predicament we find ourselves in a lot of the time. Not, but it's not sadness because something's going wrong. That's another example of why we really need to be using wise reflection to investigate my relationship with sadness. When I feel sad... Can I just accept sadness as like this? Or do I somehow feel like I'm failing? Mm. I know for a very long time I always perceived sadness as failing. Yeah. And, and, and the ugliness of life. You know, when I saw the ugliness of life sometimes, it, you, know, you see how ugly life can be and how sad people can behave, that I always perceived that as a failure. It was only relatively recently when I was with... Um, I was actually I was with Ajahn Chandapalo and we were staying with some friends. Um, it was in Croatia, on the coast of Croatia. And we'd gone for a walk along the, the coast and, and we heard all this noise coming and I thought, well, that's a strange noise. It sounded actually like a Maori haka. I thought, well, a Maori's maybe over here doing rugby with the Croatians or something, which seemed pretty unlikely. But uh, as we got closer, well, it turned out to be something like that. In fact, it was... Croatia was playing Germany in the World Cup. And there was all these drunk guys around, because Croatia was doing very good and beating the Germans. In fact, they did beat the Germans. And so there was all these drunk people there uh, having a pretty good time and, and going for Croatia. And, and one or two of the guys came up and were talking to us, and Chandapala and I, and... and uh, yeah, very nice actually, very friendly. It was nice to meet some of the locals. And, but then some of the others came over and they weren't nice at all. In fact, they were very, very unnice people. And, uh, and as in Chandapala and I, we got out of there pretty quickly. But as we were walking back along the coast again, I was interested to notice what came to my mind was not oh, how terrible it all is and how it shouldn't be this way. I just said, well, it's sad, but this is, you know, this is it. You know, humanity's always been like this. Humanity's always been like this. Human beings have always behaved this way. They've always gotten drunk. They've always had fights. They've always behaved like this. And there's absolutely no evidence to think that it's ever going to be any different. For everybody, that is. 
And what I realised in that moment was, here I am, or whatever age I was, still kind of just recovering from a happy ideal that everything is love and light, you know, that we're all supposed to be, you know, having a nice time. You know, when in fact, <laughs> there's no evidence to support that at all. That's a, that's a complete con. But when we wake up to it, we don't have to get indignant and pulled down by it. We can feel sad, but sadness is actually one aspect of compassion. You know, to feel the sadness of life, you know, the sadness of the way, you know, the way those people were behaving, you know, it wasn't beautiful, some of the things they said and did. But, you know, the sad thing is they don't even know what they're doing. You know, they've only got a sort of a life, and that is sad. But one doesn't have to deny the sadness and fall into despair. You say, well, sadness is like this. You know, sadness actually opens the heart, warms the heart, allows for compassion to manifest. So we don't have to be fooled by the way even sadness appears, even if whatever lies ahead of us is some sadness. We don't have to become victims of sadness. We don't have to be pulled down into despair by sadness. With wise reflection, we can investigate our relationship to sadness. And you know there's even a beauty in sadness. You know, partly it's, the, it's just the beauty of being honest about life. So on that point of beauty, thank you very much for your attention. <coughs>